Thanks, Tim, and good morning. You're all very welcome. I would echo that welcome to you, especially if you're a visitor with us this morning in the Crescent. Uh, lots of things happen at the end of a year and the start of a new year, don't they? But one of the things that happens often in late December is that we'll find online somewhere a list of celebrities that we lost in 2022 or whatever the year was. And there's something about the close of the year, the close of those 12 months that makes us reflect on the people who started that 12 months with us, but they didn't finish them. For most of us, probably the one that jumps out in the last year was Queen Elizabeth. For some of you, perhaps there's something more personal than that. You look back on the last 12 months and think of a spouse or a loved one who started last January that year with you, but they weren't yet there at the close of it. Death is something that is ever-present in our lives, and yet we find it so uncomfortable to think about it and talk about it. Everybody dies. Everyone you know will die. Your parents will die your children will die, your friends will die, and you will die. And I am quite sure that a lot of you have felt discomfort even hearing me say those words. Why does he have to say it like that? Don't want to think about that. The poet says, so it stays just on the edge of vision, a small unfocused blur, a standing chill that slows each impulse to indecision. Most things may never happen. This one will. At some deep level within us, we sense and we feel that death is wrong. It runs counter to how we feel things should be. We have a survival instinct. We want to live. And we know that death is somehow an enemy of us. It is like this predator that stalks us just out of sight in the shadows, and yet we know that someday it's going to find us. Even the ideal death that we might picture at 90, surrounded by family, slipping away in our sleep, it still feels wrong. Which of us, if we could go on living in health and strength and enjoying time with those we love, wouldn't do it? We were made to live and yet death comes to us all. And the reality of that is the situation that Jesus finds himself in in John chapter 11. And if you have a Bible or a pew Bible in front of you, one of these, open it up to John 11, page 897. And let's read the start of this encounter. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and are you going there again? Jesus answered, 
are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So the news comes to Jesus from Mary and Martha that Lazarus is gravely ill. Lord, the one who you love is ill. And just a little bit of context about what's going on at this particular moment. This is coming towards the end of what people call Jesus' public ministry, of the time when he traveled around and taught and healed and did all of those things that we think of when we think of Jesus traveling about. He's coming to the end of that time now. And just in the chapter before in John, we've heard about a plot to kill him, and he has just escaped from a murder attempt, an assassination attempt, and withdrawn back from Jerusalem, back from, from that place where the, the elites who ruled the country at the time were, were trying to kill him. So he's withdrawn across the Jordan with his disciples. He's a strategic retreat, if you like, and the news comes to him. Lazarus is gravely ill, and Lazarus lives in Bethany. Bethany is a little village on the outskirts of Jerusalem. It's about two miles, a bit less than two miles from Jerusalem. So it's really, really close. It's like from here to the Harland and Wolf Cranes. So you can just sense the disciples' fear, can't you? We've literally just escaped a stoning. We've literally just escaped an attempt to kill you, Lord. You're going to go right back there. You're going to go that close to them again. The disciples just sort of leap. Whenever the Lord says Lazarus is asleep, you can feel them jump on that. Oh, well, if he's asleep, it's okay. We don't need to go. He'll wake up again. The disciples fear death as well, don't they? They're not spared that fear that we feel either. They're frightened about Jesus dying, and you suspect they're probably frightened about them dying as well. Even Thomas's courageous statement, let's go with him, that we might die as well, shows that they feared of death. And the Lord says to them very calmly, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. I don't know why I find that line from Jesus so moving, so emotional, but I really do. Perhaps it's just the calm authority that Jesus speaks with in the midst of all of this fear Lord, they're going to kill you. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I am going to wake him up. There's just no fear of this thing that the disciples are so worried about. You can just hear the disciples crying, can't you? Lord, they're, they're going to kill you. And the Lord says simply, I know I'm going anyway. That's really the idea of the incarnation in a sentence, isn't it? And I don't know if you're visiting with us this morning what your view of God is, how you see God. But here's the first glimpse of the heart of God that we're going to see from this passage this morning. 
a God who looks at those he loves in distress and goes to help. The God who left heaven became a man and lived and died with us. You can almost hear the angels saying in heaven, reverently speaking, when they hear of the incarnation, Lord, they will kill you. And God says, I know, but I'm going anyway. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. But before we get there, we have to consider one difficult thing. We read this line, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I'm sure that struck some of you as we were reading through it. Maybe you thought that was a, a typo. It's not a typo. But it really makes us think, doesn't it? You imagine hearing someone you love dearly was sick and you thought, I love them so much and they're so ill, I'm going to wait a little bit longer. I'm going to put it off for another couple of days because I love them. You know, we would understand it if it said Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, but he was delayed. He wanted to get there, but something happened and, and he couldn't just get there in time. We'd even be happy if it said Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus and he was delayed because it would give us a bit of room to wiggle, wouldn't it? Maybe there was something equally pressing that happened that we're not told about. But that's not what it says. There is a cause and effect relationship here. There is a cause and effect. Jesus loved them, so he stayed two days longer. He loved them, that's the cause. So he delays going to them, that's the effect. Now, what on earth is going on here? Why on earth would Jesus delay going? Because he loves them. We get a little clue later on when he's talking to the disciples and he's having to set them straight and he says, Lazarus has died and I am glad that I was not there for your sake so that you may believe. Jesus' purpose in his delay was for some greater good for his disciples and by extension for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. So his delay was for some greater good for those he loved. Three times in this story, the Lord gets some version of, if only you'd been here, thrown at him. Martha says it, Mary says it, and we can hear the crowd mumbling it as well. This guy who could heal the eyes of the blind like we were hearing last week, the guy who could heal the eyes of the blind, could he not have healed his friend before he died? If only you'd been here, Lord. So the crowds are aware that Jesus has some miraculous power over illness. His disciples know he has some miraculous power over illness. And Martha herself, as we're going to see in a little minute, Martha knows that Jesus has some special relationship with God. She says, even now in the midst of all of this, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. But she is not expecting what happens. And we see that from her reaction when it does happen. So they know a bit about Jesus, but Jesus himself is not satisfied with that. He knows that they have not yet grasped the full reality about who he is. And to get them there, to help them realize fully who he was, 
he is prepared to let temporary suffering bring them to a greater understanding of himself. And maybe you're a visitor here this morning and you think, what a horrendous attitude. What a horrendous ego trip that is. And if it was me doing it to you or you doing it to me, of course, it would be horrifying letting someone suffer just so they would know you better at the other end of it. But God the Son is not you or I. God is the most glorious and satisfying and wonderful person in the whole universe. And a relationship with Him is the most glorious and satisfying thing that we can have as His creatures. It is the thing we were made for. It is our ultimate purpose. It is our ultimate good. The joy of that relationship of knowing God eclipses every other possible joy. And so the reality is, Jesus is not prepared to fix a painful situation for them and spare them that little suffering at the expense of them missing out on getting to know Him in all of His fullness. The joy if Jesus had arrived five days earlier and healed Lazarus when he was sick is far, 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 far eclipsed by the joy they have in knowing Jesus more fully for who He is. And that is what we see the Lord doing. The Lord shows His love for us by giving us Himself, by giving us more of Himself. Anything less than that would be second prize at very best. Christian, it can be hard sometimes to understand why God has allowed certain things to happen in your life, can't it? But if the Lord has allowed the effects of this fallen and broken world to touch your life, the reason that this passage offers, possibly the ultimate reason for you on an individual level, is that it is with the aim of drawing you closer to Him, to giving you through that a greater understanding of who He is and of how much He loves you. And there is a comfort in that because it gives us a purpose. Whatever difficulty you are facing, it is not random chance. It is not just bad luck. But the Lord will work through that in a way that brings you closer to Him and allows you to enjoy more of Him and allows you ultimately to enjoy more of eternity than would have been possible if you hadn't gone through it. One Christian author says, often we can see how bad things work together for good. It's a phrase the Bible uses. The problem is that we can only glimpse this sometimes and in a limited number of cases. But why could it not be that God allowed evil because it will bring us to a far greater glory and joy than we would have had otherwise? What if the future world will somehow be greater for once having broken and lost? If such is the case, that would truly mean the utter defeat of evil. Evil would not just be an obstacle to our beauty and bliss, but it will only have made it better. Evil would have accomplished the very opposite of what it intended. And we can see a little glimpse of that happening here in this story. Look at the greater understanding Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the disciples have having gone through this episode. Think of how their confidence 
and their courage would have been strengthened by having gone through this experience. So Jesus waits the two days, and when he arrives, he finds Martha and Mary in some of the deepest distress that any human being can experience, the bitter grief of the loss of someone you love dearly. So let's read the next section, starting, um, starting again at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in her spirit, his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Look at the conversation that unfolds between Jesus and Martha. If only you'd been here, Lord. I wonder if you've ever had an if only moment. If only that person had been here, they could have fixed my flat tire. But often in life, our if only examples are much more painful than that, aren't they? If only I'd stayed in the house with him that day instead of gone out shopping. If only he'd turned right at the end of that road and not left. If only, if only. Lord, if only you'd been here. And the Lord says to her, your brother will rise again. It's a masterpiece of ambiguity there. Your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know he will rise again on the last day. At the end of all things, there will be a resurrection and he will rise again. And Martha is an intelligent woman. 
Martha is a, a successful woman, probably, but she is certainly an intelligent and thoughtful woman, and she's a theologically thoughtful woman. She knows that at the end of everything, there will be a resurrection. So, her answer is completely right. I know we'll rise again on the last day. And then Jesus makes this staggering statement that is the point of this whole episode. He turns to her and says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never really die. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. And Jesus is really making two separate statements about himself there. He's, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Those are complementary statements. I am the resurrection, he says to her, and I am the life. And so to Martha's if only, Jesus points to himself. Despite what we might like in our own lives, Jesus' intention for us is not to fix a series of difficult events so that life becomes smooth, painless, and happy. And maybe you're listening or you're visiting with us this morning, and you quite like the idea of God as a bit of a, a genie for you, someone who can smooth out the bumps on the road. I remember watching a TV program some time ago, and, and it was about a secret organization, and someone had discovered something about them, and, and, and to make sure they kept the secret, they offered them a little card, and they gave them a card, and the card had a phone number on it, and they said, someday in your life, you will come across a bad situation. Something bad will happen to you, something you don't see coming, you don't know what it is, but something bad will happen. And when it does, if you phone that number, we will fix it for you. And that was the deal. And that's a deal probably in our natural selves we quite like to have with God as well, isn't it? Maybe that's what you'd quite like to have with God. Some sort of a deal, some sort of a bartering system where, where uh, you, you'll do something and then when a bad situation comes along, God will fix it for you. Well, that is not the intent of Jesus for your life. God is not here intending primarily to smooth out the road bumps. He is not here to do that. Jesus is not content to be some sort of a troubleshooter for our lives. And this is the problem with a thing called the prosperity gospel that promises that God wants to make us happy and wealthy and healthy and all of that. Jesus' intention for you and for me is to make us holy, is to make us like Him and in so doing that, to allow us to enjoy Him in a way that makes any other thing pale in insignificance. Jesus meets our if-onlys with simply, here I am. Jesus' primary interest for you in your hardship is that through it, you would come to know Him. And He makes these two statements about Himself. He says, I am the resurrection he clarifies that. Whoever believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. He's going to live again. And Jesus is claiming in some way, not clear at this moment to them, but he is claiming in some way that those who believe in him, in his words, even though they die, they will live again. He is claiming that faith in him somehow removes the finality of death. It is no longer the final full stop at the end of our lives that we all fear. 
if we have faith in Him, we will live again. And the Christian message is not that we will live again in some faint, glowing spiritual world, but that we will be raised in our bodies, resurrected and restored and redeemed, but raised in our bodies and live again. The Bible says, if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. So, faith in Jesus, He says, removes that finality of death. I am the resurrection. And then He says, I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And His clarification of that is that whoever lives and believes in Me will never die or never really die. And so, what Jesus is saying is that there is some sort of resurrection life that pierces backwards through our death and begins in us now, that we can have that resurrection life within us now through faith in Him, and that that resurrection life within us will carry us from this world into the next in a way that means that death does not really touch us in the way that we fear. So, Jesus meets Martha's if-onlys with Himself. I am the resurrection and the life. And I know some of that has been deep water for us. So, let me try for a moment just to apply it to your lives. And firstly, if you're sitting at the bed of a loved one today who is dying, or perhaps you know that you're dying, all of us know that we are dying, but some of us know that it is much more imminent than others. Some of you perhaps have gotten a scan or a letter or a biopsy, and this is not theoretical to you. You know the clock has been ticking, and it is clear to you now that the time is soon going to run out. You are facing the reality of your own death. You know that this perhaps was your last Christmas. Perhaps you're the only one who knows that. What can you be offered? Book a holiday to the Caribbean before you get too sick. Go skydiving before you get too unwell to do it. Tick off the bucket list. That's the best that the world around us can offer you in this moment, if that's you. Two weeks on the beach. That's it, some sandcastles. That's all it's got for you, and then the end. Jesus offers you something else. Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus offers you resurrection life. That's a very particular application. But secondly, and probably more generally for most of us, perhaps your life is beset by fear and uncertainty about your own health, about your own mortality. I know a friend who went through a period of deep fear about his own mortality with no apparent reason for it. Every night he went to bed, and within himself he felt a fear. Will, will I wake up in the morning? Is this it? Unresting death a whole day nearer now? flashes afresh to hold and horrify. And perhaps you feel that as well. You feel the frailty of life. You're aware of how tissue paper thin the difference between being alive and being dead is. 
Well, Jesus promises you that you can feel the comfort and the confidence of that resurrection life here and now. How? Through a relationship with him. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I am the resurrection and the life. I know that for some, particularly if you're in the midst of suffering, all of what I've just said may seem difficult. Perhaps it seems even a bit cold and remote. Perhaps Jesus seems like he has been calculated in what he's been doing. So to address that, let's come and read the last part of the story together. Let's break in again at verse 32. Now, when Mary came to Jesus, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said to them, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account that the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Mary leaves the house and she comes to Jesus now, still on the outskirts of Bethany, we think, and says, Lord, oh Lord if you'd been here, but falls at the Lord's feet weeping, overcome with grief. And we have this group of well-meaning mourners with her, and they're weeping as well. And Mary at his feet weeping, and rather than standing unaffected, we're told that Jesus wept as well. The shortest verse in the Bible and so frequently quoted. And it certainly shows us that Jesus was not detached or removed by the grief of Mary. God is not a God who is uncaring about our emotion, about our feelings, about what we are going through in the depths of our souls. He stands there with us in it. But you may be surprised to learn that the predominant emotion that Jesus was feeling at this very moment was not grief or sadness, but outrage. I have absolutely no pretense at being a Greek scholar, but any commentary you will read will tell you that that phrase, deeply moved, is mistranslated in pretty much every English translation. 
And the problem with it is when we read deeply moved beside Jesus wept, we think it means Jesus was deeply moved with grief and sadness. But that is not that word. The word is outrage. The word calls to mind horses snorting in anger. Jesus is confronted here with the sharp end of the reality of the fallen world. He sees the effect of death on those he loves, on his dear friends, and through them he sees, as he has seen all along, the effect of death and sin on all of creation. He sees the reality of it. He sees the reality of the brokenness of this world and its ultimate fruit, death, death the last enemy, and he is outraged at it. He looks at the grief and the pain that death has caused, and he thinks, this is the work of the enemy. This is the work of the enemy, and he is outraged at it. Where have you laid him? And they bring him to the tomb, and he looks at that tomb, and he is outraged again. He sees Lazarus sealed away permanently behind that stone in a cold cave, He sees the work of the enemy, and he advances on that tomb, not like the grieving masses behind him, but as someone said, like a warrior going into battle. Lazarus, come out. And so the application for us is really clear. Jesus cares more deeply about your pain and your suffering than you could possibly imagine. It moves him when he sees the pain that this broken world causes. In fact, it was of such great importance to him that he was prepared to give his own life to deal with the root cause of it. Not to troubleshoot individual moments of pain, but to deal with the very heart of the issue. Shortly after this, Jesus is going to face his own death. In fact, the the events here are one more step in the line of that. The fact that he raises Lazarus from the dead spurs on those people in opposition to him to plot his death. We're going to see that just later on in the chapter. Jesus is going to his own death. And that's exactly what happens. Shortly after this, he is arrested. He's subjected to a sham trial, and he is murdered. A plot is run to have the Roman authorities murder him by execution on a cross. And yet Jesus went forward to that, just like he went back to Bethany, despite his disciples' protests, because he knew that by dying, he could take the full consequence of our rebellion against God and the brokenness of this world and offer us forgiveness and restoration. So, as we conclude this morning, Lazarus is out of the grave. Out he comes, wrapped still in in the linen cloths that people were buried in in those days. You would have been wrapped in linen cloths and had one wrapped around your head. And Lazarus, you can just picture the scene, can't you? Out of the darkness of the cave comes this figure wrapped and struggling against the binding of the cloths into the light. Jesus says, take them off, take them off, rip them off, unbind them, and let them go. Lazarus is back in the land of the living. But he's only back temporarily. 
the grave clothes were still wrapped around him. Lazarus was going to die again. This was simply a stay. Three days after Jesus' death, God the Father rolled back the stone on his tomb. And he raised the Lord Jesus back to life again as well. The ultimate vindication that Jesus' death on the cross had conclusively defeated the problem, had conclusively defeated death. Death was vanquished, we would sing, was totally beaten. Its power was no more. We would say it had no hold on him, couldn't lay a hand on him anymore. Jesus had come out the other side, raised again to life. And when Jesus walked out of the tomb, he wasn't still bound up in the grave clothes. In fact, John tells us that the face cloth has been neatly folded and set aside the way we do when we're finished with something. It's a very potent symbol, isn't it? I won't be needing this anymore. I won't be coming back from this. Jesus was raised to life. Jesus, the Bible tells us, was the first fruits, like the first fruits of a harvest. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of life. And we are the harvest coming along behind him. I don't know what situation you find yourself in this morning. I don't know what private grief or pain you're suffering. I don't know how the reality of this broken world has affected you. But Jesus does. And he wants to stand beside you in the tears, just as he stood beside Mary in hers on that dusty road 2,000 years ago. And he also wants to offer you more than simple words of consolation or some miraculous fix to get rid of this current issue. He wants to offer you himself, a real and living relationship with himself. That's his offer this morning. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Lord, we thank you for the unfolding drama of this episode that we have spent some time with this morning. We thank you for the clear picture it is of your love and care for those in your life. We thank you that it gives us such a clear image of your own heart, of love and care for this fallen and broken world. We thank you that we see your calm authority. We thank you that we see your unstoppable power. We thank you that we are confronted with the reality that you are the resurrection and the life. That outside of a relationship with you, everything else is quite simply second best, and that you are not content with second best for us. We thank you that you came and willingly gave yourself to be died on a cross so that you could offer us forgiveness and healing and restoration and redemption. And we thank you that you were raised from the dead, the first fruits of that work, the vindication of what you have done so that we can look at you and be confident that what was needed to make us right with God is finished. Lord, we ask for anyone listening this morning who is still thinking about these things. We pray that you would stand near to them and that you would speak to them, that you would call them to yourself and that they would be confronted with who you are and that they would come to you. In your name, amen.